I'd ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3. That's what we're going to be looking at for just a few minutes tonight. On the evening of Good Friday, I want to lead us through what's been called the most important paragraph ever written, Romans 3, 21 through 26. It was written about 25 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. It was written by a man named Paul, who had been a Jewish terrorist who persecuted Christians. However, um, about 20 years before writing, he had been converted, and in that time, he became the leading church planter in the first generation, helping to establish and nurture dozens of churches. This most important paragraph falls in the middle of a letter he wrote to a church he hadn't yet visited. Paul wanted to visit them, but he wrote them this letter to make sure that their faith was strong that their love for each other was strong. He wanted this church in Rome that he had never visited, to whom he's writing to strengthen, he wanted them to be a solid base for further mission, church planting work, into what's now Spain. What makes this single paragraph so great is that in it Paul describes how humans who are lawbreakers and therefore condemned can be declared righteous before God, can be declared righteous forever. Throughout the message, I'm going to define five terms. The title of my message is actually Come to Terms with the Cross. These terms define what was happening when Jesus was dying on the cross. They cumulatively define it. The first term, before you can understand any of what Jesus did, the first term is condemnation. Condemnation. It's a legal term that refers to the act of pronouncing someone to be guilty. Sentencing someone to punishment. The case that Paul has been making up until this most important paragraph is that every human is condemned under condemnation. So in Romans 1, we're just doing a little bit of review to work up to our paragraph. Paul had described how every pagan or irreligious person lives in this constant condition that God is justly and judicially indignant with them, opposed to them. And that's because even though they're pagan, even though they're irreligious, even though they've never had a Bible, they don't submit to the God they know is there. And Paul says everyone knows that God is there. Instinctively, we know it because creation evidences design. In the second chapter, Paul goes farther and he says, every person who comes from a religious background is just as condemned as those who come from irreligious backgrounds. He's talking about people who, like himself, were very religious Jews. 
And he basically says, even if you have a Bible, you don't live it. And he explains that religious knowledge gets you nowhere with God. Religious ritual gets you nowhere with God. A religious identity, I had parents who were believers, gets you nowhere with God. He actually goes on and says, if you have the Bible, it actually deepens your guilt because to know more makes you more responsible. The beginning of chapter 3, Paul sums up his case and he says, whether you're religious or irreligious, you're condemned. You can't do anything to change your sentence of condemnation. Again, Paul's writing this to a church to stabilize them, to strengthen them in the faith. Now before I go on, I want to give a little illustration. I've described this, I think, once before, maybe a few years back, but I think it might be helpful sharing again. It's, uh, it's a very vivid memory in my own mind. In November of 2008, I hydroplaned while driving and totaled my car on I-90 about an hour west of Cleveland. At the time, I was with my wife, who was pregnant with our second child, and I was with my oldest daughter. We were headed to Chicago to visit friends for Thanksgiving. Thankfully, due to modern airbags, we didn't experience any broken bones, but we did deal with some muscle soreness for a few months. As if the incident were, were not hard enough, at the scene of the accident, the police officer ticketed me. He gave me a ticket for failure to control your vehicle. So a few weeks later, on Monday, December 3rd, the morning that we returned our rental car to the Toledo airport, I drove to the courthouse, uh, one of the courthouses in Sandusky County, and I stood in traffic court. I ended up being the last in line that morning, so I waited to speak to the judge for about an hour. That hour was intense. I witnessed something I had never seen before. The judge, who was a middle-aged woman, confronted several guilty individuals with their law-breaking actions. Most of them were 18, 19, 20. I'll never forget when she sentenced one young man who was facing his third DUI. I'd guess he was about 20. He was driving without a license, and he plowed his car into a tree off of the road. This judge yelled at him as his mother was just a few feet behind him crying. What I remember her saying is, young man, do you see your mother's tears? Do you realize how many people's lives you have put at risk? Young man, when is it going to get through your thick skull that you're a fool? And that you're a danger to yourself and everyone around you? She said, there's no escaping time for you. I'm going to make you sit and think about your choices. And she sentenced him to prison. 
she was intense. That was my only time in court. She was intense, but she was just. The young man standing in front of her was a lawbreaker, and she justly condemned him. Now, I was watching this play out from the back of the courtroom, <laughs> and I was getting increasingly uneasy as everyone in front of me was getting yelled at. <laughs> there were about six cases that went before me, and they were blatantly guilty young people, and uh, each of them got meted out justice. Um, I was the last person to stand, and you know she was on a roll, and I thought, oh, no. I, I stood very, very quietly and timidly, and uh, I pleaded guilty, and I said, I did not control my vehicle, and, uh, and I said, it was a really bad storm, and I had slowed down in the conditions, but I, I didn't slow down enough, and I said, I brought some printouts of what the weather was like that morning, and we were right in the thick of it, and she very graciously said the officer should have never issued you a ticket and she moved my removed my $105 fine but what i learned in that courtroom i will never forget condemnation is real it's terrifying to stand before a judge who is committed to justice that's the point that paul's making in romans 1 to 3 every human whether religious or irreligious in your background, is condemned because all of our actions are law-breaking. No one is going to have any excuse in God's courtroom. That's right where Paul ends in verses 19 and 20 before this paragraph. That's the most important paragraph in the Bible. The most important paragraph begins with, but now. Romans three twenty-one. but now. In other words, there's hope. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus the Messiah for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I want to explain this wonderful paragraph in five statements, and I'm going to weave the rest of the definitions throughout the explanation. I'm going to end with a few applications, and then before we sing, we are going to have a time of corporate adoration, a time when I'm going to ask you to stand. This is right after I finish speaking. I'm going to ask you to stand. And I hope 10 or 20 of us just lift our voices one after the other and praise Jesus for what he did for us on the cross. You might use 
a specific statement that we read here in Romans 3. Or it might be a tiny statement from another passage of Scripture. Maybe it's a song, one of the the phrases from a song that we sang. Or maybe it's part of one of these definitions. Just, when I finish, I would love to lead us in praying corporately. The first part of the explanation is, God has a way that he can give righteousness to those who are condemned. And he does not give it to anyone on the basis of their law-keeping. He has a way, and it's not through obeying the law. This is amazing. In verse 21, you see Paul says there's a way to be right with God that's apart from the law, even though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That means that there is a way to be right with God that doesn't depend on your own keeping of the law. God can declare you not guilty of breaking the law whether or not you've broken it. Wow. Instead, Paul says that this way of being right with God was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. Of course, he's referring to all of the promises that begin really on the first page of the Bible, saying that there is going to be a descendant of Eve that is going to crush Satan's head and end the reign of sin and death that's come on earth. By the middle of Genesis, we know that the one who's going to bless the world and rid it of the curse is going to be an individual male who will be the sacrifice that the Lord himself provides. By the end of Genesis, we know that this long-awaited individual is going to be a king who's going to rule the world and restore blessing to it. And he's going to be a descendant of Jacob and of Jacob's son, Judah. The long-awaited deliverer, we're going to find out, is going to be the fulfillment of the temple. He's going to fulfill the Day of Atonement, the great Day of Atonement that took place at the temple. He's going to fulfill every holiday, including the great Passover. This long-awaited king, deliverer, as Isaiah prophesied, would be crushed for our iniquities. Zechariah said... He'll remove the people's sins in a single day. Daniel said his life is going to be cut off, but not for himself. The law and the prophets are testifying there's a way for your sins to be forgiven, and it doesn't have to do with your law keeping. Hint, hint, it somehow has to do with the sacrifice of a perfect king. Whoa. Second, God's gift of righteousness is available for everyone. This is what Paul stresses in verses 22 and 23. He says, God can give the gift of righteousness to anyone who trusts Jesus. It's for all who believe. There is no distinction, he says explicitly, between religious and irreligious, between Jew and non-Jew. And this very famous statement of verse 23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm so thankful our kids memorize it in Buckaroo. This famous statement, it does teach that everyone's a sinner. But what Paul is doing is he's actually using it to say, see, that's why all can be saved. Because if there's a cure for sin, it works for any sinner. 
everyone can be saved. Thirdly, God can give you the gift of his righteousness freely. According to verse 24, it's a gift. It's by his grace, his generosity. It's undeserved as a gift. And this gift is called being justified. That's the gift. You can be justified. So that's our second term. Justification. It's the opposite of condemnation. This again is a legal term. It refers to a change of status from condemnation to justification. It's from being guilty to being not guilty. Justification is a once-for-all declaration by God that you're not guilty in His sight, but you're righteous. To be clear, God is not making you sinless immediately. He's declaring you to be righteous. It's your status. It's an amazing gift. Now, you might be scratching your head saying, wait, wait, wait. But how can God declare someone who's not righteous to be righteous? That doesn't seem just. That's a great question. And Paul's going to go there and we're going to get there. Hang on to it. I want to keep exploring what Paul says right here and then we'll get to that. The third term is redemption. Paul teaches, verse 24, that God gives us the status of justified through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Redemption is a business term. It comes from the the place of commerce, the marketplace. It's not the law court. It's not a legal term. It's a business term. And it refers to liberation. Setting slaves free. Setting prisoners free. And redemption occurs with a payment. The payment for redemption is called a ransom. The Jews on Passover night were redeemed from slavery in Egypt and the payment of the ransom, interestingly, was the blood of a lamb that they painted on the doorposts. Passover night. Tonight! Passover night, redemption happened. Freedom from Egyptian slavery happened when the Lamb's blood was spilt. And similarly, Jesus said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. That means I came to give my life as the payment for slaves to be free, to be liberated. And Paul says, you can be justified through that redemption. One more term. One more term here. Paul teaches that the way liberated slaves can be liberated is because God gave the Messiah to be their propitiation. You see that term in verse 25? This is a term that's not a legal term and it's not a business term. It's a worship term. It comes from the temple. It refers to a gift that appeases the anger of God. 
a propitiation is a blood sacrifice that completely exhausts God's wrath so that he's no longer indignant with you, but favorable toward you. So God can justify us through the redemption that's in Jesus because God made Jesus to be our propitiation. That's how lawbreakers who are condemned can be justified. Here's how I'd state the main idea. Because Jesus gave his life to redeem slaves, those who were slaves to sin and death, and because Jesus spilled his blood to propitiate God's just wrath against sinners, to exhaust God's indignation, God can freely justify every condemned sinner who trusts Jesus. We have just a few more steps to take, but just before we're done, I want to explore verses 25 and 26. Okay? Number four. God can give you the gift of his righteousness justly. This is where you may have been scratching your head and saying there's a problem. Is it just for a judge to declare someone who is guilty not guilty? I mean, wouldn't that judge in Fremont, Ohio have been unjust to let that guy with three DUIs just go? She would have been unjust. She would have been unwise. Isn't that the case? If God declares a lawbreaker like me to be not guilty, doesn't that make God a bad judge? And Paul's final statement of this most important paragraph shows how God can be. Look at the exact words of the end of verse 26. God can be both just and the justifier of the lawbreaker who trusts in Jesus. Just and the justifier of condemned lawbreakers. Wow. You say, how? How? Scratch your head and say, how? The answer is the cross. It's the cross. It's what makes Christianity unique from every other religion on the planet. God can be just and justifier. God is not arbitrary in forgiving people. He doesn't say, I kind of feel like forgiving you today. I didn't yesterday, but I do today. I'll forgive you today. God is not an arbitrary forgiver. He forgives people through the cross. Two subpoints. You see it in verse 25. The cross billboards. It's a huge billboard screaming, God was righteous, 
even though he seemed to let sins go unpunished. So like, how did God just forgive Moses of his outbursts of anger? How did God forgive Rahab of her prostitution? How did God forgive David of his adultery and murder? Was he just random? Did he just favor those people and just make a decision one day kind of whimsically? I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to forgive you. I'm not going to forgive all those people over there. No, no. God wasn't ignoring any of the sins he forgave. Verse 25 says he was temporarily delaying punishment until Jesus' crucifixion. He was postponing the full exaction of punishment till a later time. You say, what later time? The cross. And secondly, Paul goes on to say that the cross billboards not only the past sins that God seemed to overlook, but the cross billboards that God is righteous when he forgives sinners today. If a local judge in our county declares a criminal who is in fact guilty to be not guilty, that judge will be guilty of judicial malpractice. But God can justly declare any person who's fled to Jesus to be righteous because Jesus died on the cross as the appointed substitute for all who would take refuge in him. So God can maintain his perfect righteousness, his justice, as he gives the gift of justification to unrighteous people like me and you who trust Jesus. A few years ago, I wrote this simple poem, God can be just and sinners justify. For Jesus bled God's wrath to satisfy. My sins were the spikes that nailed Christ to the tree. God's justice there for all the world to see. And with a few applications. How can I be right with God is the most important question in life. And you cannot be justified by, before God by good works. How can I be right with God? It's the most important question. That's why this is the most important paragraph. You cannot be justified by God on the basis of good works. It's not by being a good person. It's not by being a better person than other people. It's not by trying hard. It's not by good works outweighing bad. It's not by being religious and going to church and getting sprinkled and eating the Lord's Supper. It's not, as long as I'm not as bad as guys like Hitler, because maybe Hitler goes to hell, but I, I don't. It's not by being good. Goodness Your goodness has nothing to do with it. That's the first point in the paragraph. But now, there's a way God can make you righteous, and it's not on the basis of law-keeping at all. Secondly, you cannot be justified by God simply by dying. A few years ago, R.C. Sproul 
made the observation that most people today don't even think that good works are necessary to get you to heaven. They just think that everybody goes there. All you have to do is die. And everybody at the funeral says, at least he's in a better place. At least she's in a better place. Really? On what basis? Not according to God's word. You don't get justified and reconciled to God forever by dying. You don't get it by good works. You don't get it by dying. Now I want to go somewhere else and say, many people put way too much weight on their feelings. You are not justified before God on the basis of your feelings. You might feel, I'm okay with God, and not be. And you might be right with God because you trust in Jesus. And you might have many days in which you feel rotten. You feel depressed. You feel like God is at a distance from you. Don't trust your feelings. You're not justified based on whether you feel good today. Right? So I end with this last point. God's gift of righteousness comes to those who have faith in Jesus. In this most important paragraph, numerous times, Paul stresses faith. Listen to these words, verse 22. The righteousness of God is given through faith in Jesus the Messiah for all who believe. Verse 25. Jesus' crucifixion to absorb God's wrath is received by faith. Verse 26, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith. If the way to be forgiven of sin and to be right with God and an heir of eternal life in Jesus' kingdom is through faith, then what faith is, then you understanding what faith is, is a life and death matter. It's that serious. Faith is used so cheaply in our culture today. Faith is blind. No, it's not. Faith is based on evidence. Many people talk about faith-based organizations and faith-based companies, and that just means generally religious. That's not what Paul's talking about when he talks about faith that justifies. Many people talk about faith as mere optimism. Have faith. You're a person of faith. That means you're just an optimistic person. And another thing that faith is not is just mere conviction that things happened in history. You might say, I believe that God exists. I believe that Jesus died on a cross, meaning I think those things actually happened. That's not faith either. Faith is personally relying on Jesus as Savior. It's personally turning from your rebellion and calling out to Jesus, save me, have mercy on me, I need you. The way I define faith, it's the last of our terms, central term in this most important paragraph is this. Faith is personal reliance on the Lord Jesus as Savior. 
It's an enduring whole life commitment. An enduring whole life commitment to God due to an abiding conviction that he can be fully trusted. Every word he's spoken, every promise he's made, God can be trusted. That's faith. If you have never admitted to God that you're a lawbreaker, if you've never personally committed your life to Jesus as your only hope for being justified before God, do so now. Do so tonight. Jesus died. He died so that you could be justified. So that if you took refuge in him, you could be declared just, not guilty before God. We are justified by grace alone, a gift that God gives through faith alone, not works, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So Christians, on this Good Friday, I pray that this message strengthens you to keep trusting Jesus until you see him. Don't trust your feelings. Don't think that the foundation of God's love for you is whether you've had a good day today. No. The foundation of God's love for you is what Jesus did for you. And if you're trusting Jesus, you're right with God no matter how you feel, up or down. I pray that this message strengthens you. And let's Pray now, praising Jesus for what he did several centuries ago on this very night to justify us before God.